is from the Romans, and chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, and it's on page 1132. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning, so that grace may be increased? By no means. We are those who died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the sin, he, the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I'm going to start this morning with a, a brief extract from the Book of Common Prayer. Many people here will be familiar with it, many may not be. Um, it's not something I was brought up with as a, as a child, but certainly something I came into contact with very early on in my ministry all those years ago as a curate, those early morning services on a Sunday using prayer book communion. But there's some beautiful language in the prayer book, and one piece I really like to use on Easter morning at the early service is a little piece that's often called the Easter anthems. It's actually specified to be used at morning prayer on Easter morning, but it goes well as the opener to the prayer book service uh, on Easter morning. And it says... This, these are verses all from St. Paul. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. In that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. 
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. They're beautiful verses, all taken from St. Paul, and this, the middle part of that, uh, that, that set of anthems is directly taken from the reading we just heard from Romans chapter 6, from the end section that we heard read. And those readings, in many ways, capture so much of what Paul is trying to express in uh, our passage from Romans 6 this morning. Now, Paul has given us many powerful scriptures. He has, as I'm sure you know, been immensely influential in the development of Christian theology over many, many years. Sometimes, I have to say, he's not the easiest person to understand. Sometimes it's hard going. Not necessarily because of his theology, but because he was writing in the Greek and he's using rhetoric, different forms of addressing people. And of course, all that's been translated into English. And sometimes we can struggle to actually make sense of what we're reading in Paul. Not necessarily today's passage, but sometimes it can be hard. But Paul is always worth persevering with. And today's passage from Romans 6, I think, leads us into a wonderful exploration of his understanding of sin and grace. Now, to begin with, I think I should refer to what I think is a common misconception about Paul. Many people seem to say that Paul is obsessed with sin. It's all about sin with Paul. However, just a brief check in the back of this Bible of mine and the concordance showed something interesting. In Romans, it records in here 10 instances of the word sin. Grace is recorded 20 times and faith 40 times. So maybe we should say that Paul is obsessed with the remedy for sin and helping us to find a path through life, a life lived with Christ at the heart. Paul is keen to give his readers an understanding of the way grace and faith deal with human sin and contrasting that with what he sees as the failings of the law when compared with the grace of God. Now, Paul addresses these concerns to the church in Rome. Scholars cannot be sure why he's writing in this particular way. You see, often in his epistles, Paul is addressing uh, specific con conflicts or issues that have arisen amongst Christians in particular places. Romans, however, is more a sort of essay or thesis on sin and law and grace. It's written to the Roman church, but not necessarily directed at them specifically. Maybe it's more of a general teaching, and therefore one that can be readily applied to the Christian community in Preston today, as it was to the Romans around AD 57. So today, as we pick up chapter 6 of Romans, Paul has just been arguing in chapter 5, if you want to read that later, that death came into the world through Adam's sin. Again, as reflected in the Easter anthems. Death came into the world through Adam's sin, while grace and life came into the world through the offering of Christ on the cross. The result of Adam's sin was death. The result of Christ's act of righteousness was life. Total contrast. And he says that, we all know law was introduced to counter the effects of sin, to give us a way out of sin, if you like, to stop us from entering into sin. 
But actually, it just ended up making more sin. Now, that can be a bit difficult to get our heads around, really. But as maybe a simple example, let's think about speed limits on the road. Now, I used to live in Thornton, and we often would go to Fleetwood along the Amoundinus Way. And it used to be the case that the last stretch of Amoundinus Way was de-restricted. So you could go at 60 miles an hour legally all the way into Fleetwood, or all the way out of Fleetwood, if you so choose. Now, I went back a few months ago and found there'd been some alterations, and that road is now 40. And I'm quite sure that many more people now break the speed limit because either they think it's too slow, or they haven't noticed, or they've forgotten, or couldn't care less. So that law about changing the speed limit will lead to perhaps more sin in breaking the speed limit. Likewise, I don't know if you noticed, when our girls were at Penwitham Girls High School, it was a, a nightmare getting from Ashton to Penwitham in the early evening tea time. If they had to go back to school for some evening event, the traffic getting over the docks or down the strand was absolutely appalling, as I'm sure you know. So I would go down Wellfield Road, turn left, and then do a U-turn at the junction with Bow Lane, like everybody did. <laughs> now there's a no U-turn sign. I haven't had to put it to the test yet, but would I ignore that sign to, to get away from all that traffic? I'm not sure. However, um, again, a, a new law, a new restriction, new sign is put up. A lot of people will sin by ignoring it. So anyway, that's kind of a, one way of trying to understand what it means when we say that you know, the law increases sin. We are not able to live up to the demands of the law. That was the point Paul was trying to make. In contrast, as sin increased, because God loves us, so the grace of God increased to try and give us that way back to God, to try and take us away from that sin and bring us back to him. So as sin increased, so grace also increased. And so we get the beginning of our reading today. So, he says, should we go on sinning so that grace will increase even more? By no means. Of course not. That's not what he means, what wants to suggest. But he says this because we are a new creation in Christ through baptism. We are changed in our very substance in baptism. The old person is done away with and a new person emerges. Emerging from the water of baptism. United with Christ in his grace and through his grace. I think we sang a few moments ago, the old has gone, the new has come. Hallelujah. That's what Paul is telling us in the reading today. And if we are a new person, we won't want to sin because we want to walk with Jesus. But of course, there remains a tension for us because, you know, we are human. And Paul recognizes himself that uh, he struggles with his own failings, his own sin. In chapter 7 of Romans, you'll read later that Paul uh, describes himself as a wretched man who cannot do the good he wants to do, but does the bad he doesn't want to do. But that's another sermon when I'm back with you in a couple of weeks' time, so I'll stop there for now. Otherwise, I'll, uh, I'll say next time's sermon today. But you get the point. We are given God's grace. We are freed from that sin, but we struggle. We, we struggle to live that life that we are called to as changed, renewed people. So, do we recognize ourselves in this so far? Do we recognize that it is by God's grace that we have been rescued from the prospect of death and that in baptism we have begun a new life? Do we recognize that we have been given that fresh start? 
Sometimes, again, it can be hard. People can be very perverse and very stubborn. You may be familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis and his Narnia Chronicles. And in the book, The Last Battle, uh, we see something quite interesting in, in an episode towards the end. It's a long, long time since I read this book, but I do remember this, this part of it. That In the last battle, the children find themselves in heaven. Only it's something which just dawns on them slowly. Each revelation being met with delight as the true joy of God's kingdom is seen. You know, so an ailment that no longer troubles somebody or uh, somebody of an older generation seeing themselves suddenly as useful and vigorous once again. They realize that things have changed. They are no longer in the world that they knew. But at the same time, we are introduced to a group of strange dwarf-like creatures who resolutely refuse to accept that they are, in fact, in heaven. They perceive themselves to be in a dark, dismal stable, eating the most horrendous rotten food, rather than understanding that they are sharing a sumptuous banquet that has been provided for them. They believe they are being tricked by one another or by some unknown group in the far corner of the stable that, we don't really, that doesn't exist only in their minds. They are being tricked and duped, they think. And they sit in a huddle facing inwards, not seeing the glory around them. And Aslan, the lion who in the stories represents Christ, explains it like this. He says, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. It was all there for them. They were in heaven. God's grace had reached out to them, but they could not and would not and did not want to recognize it. God's grace is there before us. It is freely given. That's the nature of grace. It's not deserved, it's given. But how easy it is to turn away from that grace. Even when we have undergone our own baptism or our own conversion of the heart, it's so easy to turn away from it. We should let God rule in our lives. But in our stubbornness and in our hardness of heart, we often resist the idea of that happening. And I wonder if that's partly because we as human beings often like to be in control. Many of you maybe like to be in control. I like to be in control. I brought my wife with me this morning, Susan, sitting down here at the front. Um, and she will testify to the fact that I am a bad passenger. I was fine until I learned to drive. Once I learned to drive, I had to be in the driving seat. She tells me that, I, I can't really remember this, but she tells me that on our honeymoon, she nearly chucked me out of the car because I was being so obnoxious about her driving. I don't remember that, but she, it must have been true. She's, I think Susan and I, 25 years together nearly, has only driven me on a fraction of the journeys that we've made. She thinks it's uh, safer that way, quieter that way, more peaceful that way. I like to be in control in the kitchen too. Nobody but nobody can wash up like me. If my dad washes up, I have to check it later. Don't tell anybody that. <laughs> it's not that bad, really. Just me. I like to be in control. In many ways, great and small, many of us like to be in control. You know, Who has the TV remote control? When it's not my dad, it's me. Who locks up, or locks up the house before you set off on holidays and checks everything? We find ways to exercise control. We like to be in control or to think 
we are in control of our lives. And maybe that's one reason why we sometimes forget about God's grace and that actually Christ is in control. Paul is advocating in Romans that I allow Christ, Jesus, to be the captain of this earthly ship I call my life. What else does he mean when he tells us that in baptism we have been buried with Christ in his death and now have a new life in him, in Christ? We are to count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That means not alive to me, alive to God in Christ Jesus. That means not me at the centre, but Christ at the centre. That was the, the last verse of our reading this morning. Count yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's not in our own strength that we gain new life. It's not my work that earns me life. It's the love and the grace and the work of Christ which effects change in us. Our job is to accept that grace, to accept Christ, and to let it blossom in us. And then maybe our changed lives can bring the good news of Christ to those around us. So then, new life in Christ. That means salvation for us, but it also should mean that we give substance to that, to that new life through living a life after the teaching and example of Christ and letting him be in control. And it's a life not just for our benefit, but a life lived for others, sharing with them the love of Christ. Really quite simple stuff. Paul speaks very powerfully, often very figuratively, very dramatically, but at heart, It's a simple message about the basics of our Christian life. God's grace reaching to us, Christ within us, living for Christ. But before I draw to a close, I'd just like to return to another aspect of Paul's argument that I don't think we can overlook today. Paul draws a distinction between the negative effects of the law and the positive force of grace. The passage we just heard this morning is an extension of part of that general argument, focusing on the new life of Christ that we've not earned, but is freely offered to us by his grace. He draws this distinction, as does Jesus often draw a distinction between what he offers and what the law offers. Now, sometimes it may be too simplistic to say that first century Judaism, the Jewish law, was entirely negative or even destructive. Let's remember that in the Old Testament, we have the law, we have the books of the law, but we also have the inspiration of Isaiah and the great prophets. We also have the the, the reflective beauty of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. We have the raw power of the Psalms. We have the passionate imagery of the Song of Solomon and much more besides. And just as there are varieties and shades of understanding of the Christian faith expressed today in the worldwide church, So in the time of Jesus and in the time of Paul, Judaism would not have been an entirely uniform and monochrome faith. There were different strands of tradition. So maybe it's unfair to say that the whole of Judaism was negative and needed to be got rid of. But the experience of many, including Jesus, including Paul, was that the law had become an impossible burden. And it was bringing more despondency than hope. 
Remember how Jesus, on many occasions, sought to uh, show up the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. Remember how in Luke chapter 2, even at the age of 10, he was found in the temple debating with the doctors of the law. He started early this challenging of, of what was said about the law and about God. Jesus was a Jew, brought up in the Jewish traditions. But he could see the failings of not so much the law itself, but of the way the law was applied the way it was imposed on people who actually were looking for salvation and help, but instead were being loaded with added burdens. Now, Paul sees this interpretation of the law as a moribund system. It cannot bring life, but rather it only serves to bring about more sin because we can't live up to its requirements. And a system that is moribund cannot bring life because it's so bound up with death. And the system itself, the system of the law, Paul believes, is dying. Because now a new way is offered to us in Christ. One meaning of the word moribund is to say that something is in terminal decline. And I think that's Paul's attitude to the law. Something better has come along in Christ. It's been tried, it's been found wanting, and now it's been replaced with something new. Moribund can also mean that a thing is stagnating. It's not growing anymore. It's just stagnating. It's on its way out. And I think this is something we as Christians need to always guard against in our faith. Remember that something that was intended to bring life, bring people to God, i.e. the law, ended up being seen as moribund. Can that happen to our personal faith? Can our faith, which can be full of life, also become moribund, become stagnant? not careful it can it can also happen to our church if we're not careful our church can stop doing what it's here to do our church can stop being a beacon of hope and light to people around us our church can stop bringing salvation to people perhaps by becoming too negative too inward focused all those kind of things could it happen to our christian faith that we have been entrusted with today and tomorrow we need to be on our guard to stir up the flame of God's spirit within us and not let the torch of the gospel slip from our hands. The love of God and the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit will not fail us if we are truly dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, then the life of the church and the propagation of the Christian faith is safe in our hands. So may it be. May we be the ones who keep that faith alive and ensure that we don't become a moribund church, people with moribund faith. But our faith and our churches are alive and serving and bringing life, letting that message of Christ's grace be known in the world today. Because let's be honest, the world needs to hear that message. The world needs to hear that message of hope, that prospect of new life. Let us pray. Loving God, thank you for calling us to new life in Christ. Breathe your spirit afresh into us this day so that whatever in us needs reviving shall be renewed and restored once again and that we might live now and always to your praise and glory. 
Amen.